Our second scripture reading this morning comes to us from the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to be looking at verses, uh, chapter 26, verses 1 through 25. And this, this section, it begins for us a, a new but final section in Matthew's Gospel. Uh, it begins the, the passion narrative of our Lord. And so, Matthew 26, verses 1 through 25, let's, let's look at these verses. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, As you know, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, And they plotted to arrest Jesus in some sly way and kill him. But not during the feast, they said, or there may be a riot among the people. While Jesus was in Bethany in the home of a man known as Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. I tell you the truth, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and asked, What are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? So they counted out for him thirty silver coins. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. On the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? He replied, Go into the city to a certain man and tell him, The teacher says, My appointed time is near. I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said to them, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to him one after another, Surely not I, Lord. Jesus replied, The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely not I, Rabbi. Jesus answered, Yes, it is you. Thus ends our reading of God's salvific word. May all who hear it understand the redemptive plan that flows from the will of God. How many of you are fans of Star Wars? Yeah? What about the Lord of the Rings? A lot of the same hands there. What about the Chronicles of Narnia? Yeah, we got more hands there. there there's, there's something about a story that is epic in nature, is there not? That it somehow pulls us in and doesn't let us go. 
Perhaps it's that, that vast setting of a world that is full of the unknown and yet at the same time is also a world that is grounded with a deep, deep history. Maybe it's that, that grand story arc that, that, that goes from beauty to conflict to despair to ultimately triumph. Or it could be that heroic figure, that one who pulls off that amazing feat that in the end saves the day. Epic tales like Star Wars and The Lord of the Rings, they, they, they capture our imagination because in the back of our minds, we, we, we somehow hope that that story is real. And yet what we see in God's word is nothing less than an epic tale come to life. I mean, think about it. It has all the elements that I just talked about and it has them in abundance. For in the Bible, we, we, we see this grand, overarching narrative that's full of mystery and history. It has this story arc that, that's composed of beauty and, and conflict and despair and, and triumph. It is an epic story that stretches throughout all of time. And it incorporates each and every one of us. Plus, it has a hero who is unmatched. Not even the most engaging characters can, can hold a candle to him. This story begins at the dawn of time, at the, at the creation of all things, when the world was good and flawless, and so was mankind. And then we see the fall, when sin entered the picture and, and the world became marred and man was lost. But then... There's this redemptive tale where we see God, our hero, working out his salvific plan in spite of man's continuation in sin. And this, this plan, it, it finds its culmination in one man who is not just a man, but God incarnate. It is in Jesus Christ that the hope of the world has been placed. He must be the one to rescue his people. And it is in him, in, in his life, that, that's what we've been witnessing as we've been going through Matthew's gospel. And now we've reached this last section, last part of Matthew's gospel. This section known as the Passion Narrative. And in these next three chapters, we're going to witness some amazing, amazing things. We will see Jesus being betrayed by those who were closest to him. We will see him be put on trial for false charges. We will see him, find him being crucified, even though he is the innocent one. And finally, we will witness his resurrection, the very thing that gives us both victory and hope for our future. In essence, what we will see as we journey through this last part of Matthew's gospel is the heart of the Christian message. It is what is necessary for the Christian faith. But we should also remind ourselves that, that everything that we have read before was pointing us to this point. From Christ's genealogy to his baptism from his temptation in the wilderness to, to, the, to his calling of the twelve, 
from his Galilean ministry to his pointing out the hypocrisy of the religious elite, from Peter's great confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, to Jesus' transfiguration high upon that mountaintop, from his triumphal entry into Jerusalem to his cleansing of the temple courts, from his authority being challenged to his scathing judgment upon this generation. All these things have led us to this moment, a moment when Jesus would fulfill what was necessary for God's redemptive plan. And what we see first is the necessity of God's will in salvation. God's will was necessary for our salvation. And so as we go through this passage, let us pay close attention to the details, for for they will tell us a story that we would otherwise miss out on if we just do a superficial reading of this. Let's look at the first two verses. Look at verses 1 and 2. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, As you know, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. This was now the the fourth time that Jesus had warned his disciples regarding his impending death. Only now he was being very specific concerning the timing of this event. He said that it would happen in two days, that it would happen on the Passover. And there was a reason that it had to happen on Passover, for this was God's will, God's timing. You see, Jesus would be that that true Passover lamb, the one one whose blood would cover over our sins. Rescuing God's children. I mean, think about what we read in the book of Exodus earlier at that first Passover. What was God doing there? He was rescuing his people from the shackles of slavery. And if you remember, it was that tenth plague. The plague of the firstborn son that that loosened Pharaoh's grip and allowed them to return eventually to the promised land. The angel of death was coming, and only the blood of that sacrificial lamb, which they painted on their doorposts, only that blood could protect them, protect them from God's judgment. But now, what do we see in this passage? What do we find here? We find Jesus the very one who would be crucified during Passover. And this is very, very significant, for for Jesus is the better Passover lamb. He is that better sacrifice. For not only does he rescue us from death, but he has the power to set us free from a different kind of slavery, a different set of shackles. He frees us from the slavery to sin. This is what we read about in the beginning of Matthew. 
Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, it says this. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name of Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Yes, it was God's will that Jesus Christ would be that sacrificial lamb, our Passover lamb. But more than that, there, there was another reason for God's timing, and we'll, we'll get to that in a minute. There was another reason that Jesus would have to die in the Passover. But first, let's, let's look at these next three verses, because it's there that we're going to find something very, very interesting. Look at verses 3 through 5. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas. And they plotted to arrest Jesus in some sly way and kill him. But not during the feast, they said, or there may be a riot among the people. Here we see the instigators, those who are plotting to murder our Lord. And Matthew refers to them as uh, the chief priests and the elders. And basically, who, who they were, this was the Sanhedrin, the, the high council in Jerusalem. Men, these men, they were both Sadducees and Pharisees. Men who typically did not get along, but they got along just fine when it came to plotting against Jesus. These were the men who were in charge. And they were the very ones who had been opposing Jesus throughout his ministry. But what do they say when they are conspiring together? Not during the feast, or there may be a riot. They seem to be on a, a totally different timeline than, than what Jesus was on when it concerned his death. I mean, think about what we saw earlier back in Matthew 21. It was there that, that they first wanted to arrest him but couldn't. Look, look at Matthew 21, verse 45. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. They looked for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. They were afraid of the crowd. You see, during Passover, Jerusalem would be packed with people. It's estimated that, that during that festival, the city would grow from roughly 70,000 people to anywhere between a quarter of a million to half a million people. And so in their minds, they, th this was not the moment to arrest Jesus, for it would only cause more of a stir and could potentially lead to a riot. No, the, the prudent thing to do would be to wait, to let the crowds go home and then find some sly way to kill him. You see, it, it was not enough that, that, that Jesus should be murdered, but, but these men, they wanted him to be forgotten as well. They didn't want any trace of his ministry to be left. And so they plotted to kill him secretly. They waited, they wanted to wait until the crowds had dispersed. But as we'll see, God's will cannot be thwarted. And God would use their own vile hatred for this man to make sure that his timing would be followed. 
Jesus would be executed on the Passover. God's salvation would not be hidden from the world. Rather, it would, it would occur in a public venue. God would make sure that the whole world would see what was done. That they would see his atoning work. Let's find out how this happens. Look at verses 6 through 13. While Jesus was in Bethany in the home of a man known as Simon the leper, a, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. I tell you the truth, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Here we see this woman who is pouring out perfume on the top of Jesus' head. And while this may seem strange to us, this, this was actually not all that uncommon during Jesus' day. This, this type of anointing was often performed for rabbis who were highly esteemed. And maybe this is what this woman thought she was doing, just giving honor to her teacher. But perhaps it was more than this. Perhaps she viewed this as some type of kingly anointing. I mean, after all, Jesus had just entered Jerusalem to shouts of Hosanna to the son of David. Maybe she understood Jesus' messianic nature, that he truly was the king of the Jews. But maybe God gave her even further insight. Maybe she did do this as a preparation for his burial. Well, the disciples, for whatever reason, they did not approve. They, they viewed this pouring out of perfume as a waste. You see, perfume's value back then was very, very great. Most likely, it, it would have been worth around a year's wage. And so in their minds, the, the better thing to have done would have been to sell it and to give the money to the poor. Yet Jesus defends this woman, saying that what she did was a beautiful thing. That this anointing, whether she knew it or not, was in preparation for his burial. What we're, what we're seeing here is, is, is just another classic case of the disciples not getting it. Not fully grasping all that Christ was teaching them. They were, they were concerned about the poor, sure, which, which they should be. But not to the detriment of the moment that they were in. I mean, remember, they, they, they were at the precipice of Jesus' death. And Christ had now warned them at least four times. And during this last time, he, he told them that it would occur on Passover in just two days. For them to not be focusing on those words demonstrated their lack of understanding concerning what this woman was doing. 
Jesus told them, you must shift your focus. You will have countless days where you can serve the poor, but now you must concentrate on the matter at hand, which is my death. Jesus needed these men to listen and realize the moment that they were in. I've heard it said before that the enemy of great is often good. And what is meant by this is that sometimes when we strive for what is good, we, we can also often take our focus off of that which is greater. And because of this, we end up missing out on the better thing. When our, when our focus is on things of secondary importance, it can distract us from things that are of most importance. Another term for this is mission creep. It's where you get distracted from your original purpose because something good comes along and, and takes your attention away. And this can happen in the church as well, just as easily as it happens in the rest of the world. And when we think about Scripture and God's Word, according to God's Word, what is the grand meta narrative, this overarching story? What is it all about? It's about Jesus. It is about him dying for our sins and him rising from the dead victorious. It is about him rescuing his people, delivering them from sin, death, and the devil. But when we lose that message, when we get distracted by other things, then, then we are just like these disciples, these men who, who didn't seem to want to think about what Jesus was proclaiming to them, that he was about to die. Christ was reminding them one more time that his death was imminent. She did it to prepare me for burial. He wants them to grasp the reality of all that's going on. He wanted them to understand that, that what he was about to do was necessary. That he must die to pay the penalty for their sins. That, that he must be that Passover lamb in order to free them from the bondage that they were under. That he must be prepared for burial. Dear friends, this burial preparation was for you as well. For you too were born into slavery. Your sins are like shackles that, that hold you down. And it's only through Jesus' death that you can be set free from those chains. Jesus is that necessary sacrifice. The only sacrifice where you can truly find forgiveness. And so, yes, this burial preparation was for you as well. Of course, there was one disciple who, whom Jesus couldn't reach, who, who just couldn't accept what Jesus was saying. One disciple who, who had a different reaction than all the rest. Look, look at verses 14 through 16. Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, What are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? 
So they counted out for him 30 silver coins. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Now I'm sure there were many things that had led up to this moment where Judas made the decision that he did. And perhaps he was jealous that he wasn't in Jesus' inner circle like Peter, James, and John, those who went up the mountain of transfiguration. Or maybe he, he saw this defeatist attitude that Jesus had, for it seemed like all that Jesus was talking about now was, was his death. How is he supposed to be the Messiah when he's not acting like a king? Why, why is he constantly focused on his demise rather than his victory? But there's another thing, and this may have been the last straw for Judas. This, this last thing was this tinge of greed that Judas had. You see, he had been the one who had been keeping the purse for Jesus' ministry. And we know that from John's gospel that he had been stealing from the kitty. Maybe seeing this waste, this expensive perfume being poured out upon Jesus' head was the thing that finally drove him to betray his master. Whatever the reasons were, whatever the motivations, we, what we see is that it was after this event, the, this event with this woman and this perfume, that he was pushed over the edge. And he sold his master out for 30 silver coins. But did you notice what else this brought about? It gave these religious leaders, these ones who hated Jesus and yet were afraid of the crowds, it gave them the opportune chance to capture their enemy in a secret manner. They wouldn't have to arrest Jesus in the public square, which most likely would have caused a riot during Passover. But now they could wait for that favorable moment when, G when Judas would lead them to Jesus in the quiet of the night. Of course, the downside of this is that it would take place during Passover. But this was too good of an opportunity for them to pass up. And their wicked, wicked hearts took full advantage. Dear friends, what you are seeing here is the will of God at work. He was using the, the evil desires of both Judas and these religious leaders to make sure that his timing and not theirs would prevail. His salvation would go as planned and Jesus would be that Passover lamb. This is God's will at work. Which leads us to the end of our story. Look at, look at verses 20 through 23. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to him, one after another, Surely not I, Lord. Jesus replied, The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. Here we see the start of this Passover meal, this last supper of our Lord. And they were at the table feasting with one another, enjoying one another's company. 
But as they were eating, Jesus spoke these shocking words. I tell you the truth. One of you will betray me. This caused two reactions. Sadness and denial. Surely not I, Lord. I mean, after all they had been through, they just couldn't imagine that any one of them would be so heartless, would, would be so cruel. But, but what is Jesus saying? The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. Now, probably each and every one of them had dipped their hand into that same bowl. The point was, wasn't to point someone out. It, it, what Jesus was conveying is that his betrayer would be a close, close friend. Someone whom he would share a common meal with. I, I hope you understand the magnitude of this betrayal. I mean, I mean, think about it. These men had been with Jesus for, for nearly three years. They had seen all that he could do. All of the miracles, all of the healings. They heard his words of wisdom over and over again. I mean, these men knew that he was the Messiah. But more than that, they had been with him through thick and thin, through the ups and downs. They remained by his side. Jesus considered them as friends. And yet now, one of them would betray him. But notice as well how Jesus knew that this was going to happen. How he had already known about Judas, Judas's meeting and his plotting with the religious leaders. And yet, even though that was the case, he was allowing it to play out because he knew that that was also his father's will. That this betrayal must take place. Of course, this leads us to that age-old question. If this was all a part of God's will, well, then how can man be blamed? Look, look at the end of our passage. Look at the last two verses. <clears throat> the Son of Man will go just as it was written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely not I, Rabbi. Jesus answered, Yes, it is you. Surely not I, Rabbi. Not Lord, but Rabbi. It is here where we see this interwoven web that is God's salvific plan in the wicked acts of men. Jesus knows he must die in order to rescue his people, but that doesn't excuse such a betrayal. Woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Listen, since the creation of the world, God has been orchestrating his redemptive plan 
Making sure that the exact, at the exact moment it would be fulfilled. And though man's will fights against it, God, he is able to use that very sinfulness in order to carry out his purposes. You see, God's will is led by a love for his people. Judas's will is led by an evil and selfish desire. God's will results in the eternal salvation of many. Judas's will results in the eternal ruin of the one. And yet somehow, some way, Judas's will is encompassed within the will of God. God allows the evil of men to flourish for a time, but he uses that evil to accomplish his own good purposes. And that is the point. It was the Father's will that Jesus should be crucified during the Passover. That Christ's death would be this public spectacle for all to see. That through the wicked acts of men would come a pathway, the only pathway to salvation. Listen, if, if it were up to us, we would be just like those disciples complaining about a, a wasted perfume while missing the point. If it were up to us, we'd be just like those religious leaders trying to get rid of our Messiah in some, some sort of quiet manner. And if it were up to us, we would be just like Judas, betraying the only one who could rescue us. And the reason we would do those things is because our hearts are naturally bent to not trust in God. We would rather rely on ourselves than to rely on Him. No, if it were up to the will of man, there would be no salvation. But thanks be to God that that's not how it is. Thanks be to God that his will overrides ours. Thanks be to God that, that his will is for our salvation. And that is why it is necessary for it to be God's will that we be saved. For his, he is the only one who, who fully desires it. And he is the only one who can truly accomplish it. Dear friends, do you see how amazing this epic tale is? For God took a, a people that wanted to have nothing to do with him. A people who were destined for hell. And he said, no. Even though they hate me, I will rescue them nonetheless. I will use their wicked ways to bring about my redemption. And I will declare it publicly. So that I might call many, many of them to myself. And I will change their hearts so that they will believe. So that they will turn from the darkness and embrace life. Brothers, sisters, this, this is what Christ has done for you.
It was his will to rescue you. And it couldn't have been done any other way. It was necessary. So let us praise his name. Let us worship the Lamb of God, the very one who rescues us from our sins. Let us pray. Father, we come to you now with humbled, humbled hearts. Too often we make everything about ourselves when it's not. And we tend to do this same thing when it comes to your redemptive work. We want it to be about our will and not yours. Help us to see that it was you who worked out your plan in order to rescue us. That if you didn't desire our salvation, that it would have never happened. And so now we pray that, that you would transform us from within. Give us thankful hearts as we look to your Son. Help us to recognize the, the mercy and the grace that comes from the cross. Give us eyes of faith through the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.